ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 58, if you're not there already. Now, a couple of months ago, Tim told me that he would be gone for one Sunday in March because he was expecting a grandchild. He wasn't sure when that day would be, but whenever that Sunday was, he said he'd be grateful if I could preach. Well, it's obviously this Sunday, and despite having months of advance, I uh, was really no more prepared for this day than I should have been three months ago. But, thankfully, Tim sent me all of his notes on this text before he left. And they were amazingly helpful. But it also means that if you end up not liking the sermon, it's Tim's fault. (laughs) But uh, in all seriousness, they were very great. This is a text that has touched my heart more than probably any other text in Isaiah in preparing for this sermon, and I pray it does the same for you. So before we dig in, please join me in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be able to worship you this morning. Lord, we thank you for being a God worthy of our worship. Lord, we thank you for this text from Isaiah that we are about to study together. Lord, a text that can be extremely life-changing if we allow it. So, Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts to be able to receive this. Lord, that the soil of our hearts might be fertile so that your word can grow and take root. And, Lord, at the end of the day, we will grow closer to you and more like Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we begin our study of Isaiah 58, I'd like to begin with both an encouragement and a warning. The encouragement is that Isaiah 58 is not a complicated passage. Some of the passages in Isaiah definitely leave you scratching your head and wondering what exactly Isaiah was talking about. This is not one of those passages. You can probably read through it once or twice and get the general gist of what he's saying. You may still have some questions about what certain phrases mean, but you can understand the major themes. So that's the encouragement. The warning, however, is that just because this passage is easier to understand does not mean that it is any easier to necessarily implement in our lives. In fact, it was a a guy who once said that uh, it's not the parts of the Bible he doesn't understand that gives him trouble. It's the part that he does. And this is one of those parts of the Bible. As I had said before, of all the previous 57 chapters we have studied in Isaiah, this one has probably been the most convicting to me personally. So saddle up. It's going to be fun. Now, in understanding the context of this passage, it's helpful to remember what Tim preached on last week with Isaiah 56 and 57. In those two chapters, we saw the Lord elevating the the Israelites' understanding of what it meant to be God's people. In essence, he said that he would bless those who live in covenant obedience with him and that he dwells with the humble. His presence is not dependent on being a blood descendant of Abraham, but rather on humility. He says that your humility matters more than your ancestry. In this passage, he similarly elevates the concept 
of covenant obedience for the Israelites. He says that what it means to live in covenant obedience, to be religious, or he elevates that concept and he uses two examples that the Jews were very familiar with, fasting and the Sabbath. So, let's start with verse 1. The word of the Lord says, Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Let's hold up there for a minute. We begin with God telling Isaiah to tell the people what they are doing wrong, their transgressions. Now that may come as a shock because we see in verse 2 that God acknowledges that these people are seeking him daily, that they delight to know his ways. The people appear to be sincere about their approach to God. But as we will see in this passage, God doesn't correct them for seeking him, but rather for the ways in which they seek him. And that serves as a reminder to us that sincerity is not enough. Because as my dad always says, you can be sincerely wrong. And yet, we find that concept quite common in our culture today. And even in our churches. The motto is, you do you. Whatever works for you, as long as you're sincere, that's all that matters. But the truth is, sincerity, if not grounded in truth, will still lead to death. So that's the purpose of Isaiah 58, to correct the Israelites' misguided sincerity in the way they sought God. And God gives them two examples of how this plays out in their lives, fasting and the Sabbath. And we begin with fasting. Verse 3, Why have we fasted, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? We see here that the Israelites' approach to seeking God was very transactional. If they fast, if they appear to externally humble themselves, if they go through the ritual by bowing down, spreading out sackcloth and ashes... If they do this, then they expect God to see them, and the implication being that God would bless them. Is that not true of many people's approach to Christianity today? At the far extreme, you have the prosperity gospel, which says that if I obey God and be a good Christian, then he will bless me with health, wealth, and success. And that is what some preach, and guess what? They have a lot of people who listen to them and buy their books. Why? Well, because if we're honest, this expectation is common to all of us. 
You know, we're tempted to say, God, I followed you my whole life. Why did you give me cancer? Or God, I chose to follow you despite objections from my friends and family. Why didn't my life get any easier? Well, whereas God absolutely welcomes our honest questions, he also expects us to be receptive to his responses, just like the response he gave to the Israelites here. So let's look at that response. Because in his response, God does two things. First, he tells them why what they are doing is wrong. And second, he corrects their, if I do this, then this will happen expectations and gives them two if-then statements that are actually right. So first, what were they doing wrong? Well, he points out in verses 3 and 4 that their fasting, which kind of serves as a proxy for religion in general, is selfish. Verse 3, you seek your own pleasure. You oppress your workers or using your workers for self-serving interests. Verse 4, you quarrel and hit with a wicked fist. Now, these descriptions could be literally, or could be literal, but they're likely hyperbole expressing how they abuse others with their self-centeredness. As the commentator John Oswalt put it, they may be afflicting their bodies with their fasting, but they are not afflicting their souls. God then points out in verse 5 that their fasting or religion is merely external or keeping rituals, observing rules, as he ironically asked them, is it really just about bowing your heads and spreading sackcloth and ashes? Now, for those of us who have read some of the New Testament, this may ring some bells for us. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, says, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces with their fasting that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. God says that's not what fasting is about. It's not about elevating yourself or merely observing rules. That's false religion. So God then gives them two if-then statements that corrects their definition of religion in verses 6 through 12. Let's start with verse 6 with the if-then statement number 1. He says, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? So what is true fasting? What is true religion? It's freedom. Observe the verbs in verse 6. Loose the bonds of wickedness. Undo the straps of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free. Fasting is about denying our flesh so that we may find freedom from the bonds of wickedness and from the oppression of sin. Does fasting itself provide that freedom from sin? No. But what it does is it pushes us to become more dependent on the one who can make us free from sin, Jesus the Christ. Fasting is not about giving up something so that God will bless you. It's about denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. Which, 
Isaiah points out, by the way, means being like Jesus in denying yourself for the sake of others. Sharing your bread with the hungry, housing the homeless, clothing the naked. Now, I am very happy that our church is doing this locally through our financial support of organizations like Abacare, the Laurel Center, CCAP, and the Rescue Mission. And I love even more that the motivation for supporting these came from you all, the congregation. But speaking from experience, financial support is easy, right? Getting down and dirty to personally help those who need it is hard. But that's what Christ did for us. You do not get any more down and dirty than Christ taking on human flesh, living among us not as a king, but as a humble servant, and then offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. That is the ultimate self-denial in service of the glorification of God and in love of others that true fasting is all about. So that's the if. What happens then, according to God? Well, verse 8 and 9 says, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. The then of the if-then associated with true fasting or true religion is that we get what the purpose of true religion is. And that is not the stuff that God can give us, but the righteousness and presence of God himself. In verse 8, we see that we will walk in light and have the healing and righteousness that the wounds of the suffering servant of chapter 53 provides. And we will have the presence of God that we read about last week. Brothers and sisters, this is true religion. Finding the righteousness that we desperately need. Walking in that righteousness and dwelling in the presence of God himself. Now I find it ironic that when we make religion not about us by denying ourselves, we individually benefit more than we ever could when we make it about ourselves. I mean, Jesus put it this way in Mark 8, 35. For whoever would deny or for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever would deny himself for the my sake in the gospels will save it. Exactly. So is your Christianity about what you can get out of it? Or is it about finding God himself? I warned you that this could be a hard passage to hear. So that's the first if-then of fasting. We still have another if-then statement and a whole section on the Sabbath. But you will see that the themes in these next two sections are very similar to what we just observed. So let's pick up again in verse 9 for the second if-then of true fasting. He says, If you take away the yoke from your mist, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, let's look at that for a minute. A couple observations. First, 
Take away the yoke from your midst. That's repenting of the sins associated with the false religion that God exposes. God's not concerned with the rituals associated with fasting. He's concerned with the heart. So he says, address that. Take away the yoke from your midst. And the second observation is that we, again, see an others-focused approach on true fasting. Here he says, pour yourself out and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Now this seems to go a step further than the imperatives of the previous verses where he speaks about feeding and clothing the needy. Because here, there's no getting around the personal sacrifice that's involved. You don't pour yourself out easily or painlessly. You don't get in the trenches with the afflicted and not receive a few battle wounds yourself. But when we love and serve a God who did just that for us, our nature is going to be like his. Now, I don't mean to belabor this point, but one of my observations is that social justice issues are not something that Reformed churches tend to pride themselves on being involved with. And I think there's a danger there, particularly for those of us who identify as Reformed, because we love the fact, almost to the point of pride, that we understand what this text means, right? We know the context and can explain a particular passage and how it fits into the overall Bible. But oftentimes that's where we stop. We don't actually change anything about our lives. We just go on happy that now we understand something that maybe we didn't before. And we look down on all those lowly peasants who can't make all those connections or draw out all those truths. Or maybe that's just me. And now you've been given a glimpse into the depravity of my heart. But I don't think it's just me because I I do see this in Reformed culture where we are often strong on truth and strong on study, but sometimes weak on action. The sad thing is that we know the truth and oftentimes we still don't do it, which somehow seems worse than not knowing the truth and not doing. And sometimes we use our pursuit of more truth as our action of doing instead of helping others. Now, more study is never bad, but if we're doing it at the expense of pouring ourselves out for others and of getting involved in other people's lives, we have to ask if what we're studying is really changing us. There's a rapper, Lecrae. Anybody listen to Lecrae? Okay, a few hands. Don't worry, I'm not going to rap for you this morning. But one of the lyrics in his songs called Go Hard says... And, and well, I'm going to summarize and not use the exact words, but he says, that means we should be out on the streets, not just in our houses, summarizing what we read. Because, man, this ain't deep. Why aren't we doing what we read? I mentioned that this text was particularly convicting for me this week, and this is one of the reasons why. Because when I look at my life, I see strong on truth, but oftentimes weak on action. 
After studying this passage, I'm almost certain it was the basis for James when he wrote in chapter 1, verse 2 of his epistle, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unpolluted from the world. We see both of those principles, keeping oneself from being polluted by the world or self-denial, and also looking after the needy, expounded upon here in Isaiah 58. So my prayer is, may God make us strong on truth and strong on action. Okay, enough of uh, my soapbox. Let's get back to the second if-then of true fasting. Because the rest of verse 10 through 12 presents the then. So let's read what happens when we implement true fasting. He says, Then your light, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually, and satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Once again, we see an emphasis on light and the Lord's presence in verses 10 and 11. But we also see a renewal or a regeneration being described. We see strong bones, a watered garden, ancient ruins being rebuilt, the restorer of streets. True religion is able to restore life to the Eden-like way it should be. Now, we know that though our relationship with God is restored, the world itself is not fully restored. But Jesus, through his self-denial, has started that process. And one day it will be fully restored and all those who practice true religion will enjoy of it in his presence forever. So I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. So that concludes the portion on fasting. The last two verses of this passage address the Sabbath. And before we read those verses, several things should be said. First, these are just two verses, but we could easily devote several sermons to just these verses and the topic and concept of Sabbath. That's not the plan this morning. We are going to study these verses as they appear in the context of this passage. And I know that may be disappointing for some who would love to dig in deep here, but that leads to the next thing that needs to be said, and that is, that our church has a position on the Sabbath. And it is that the command to keep the Sabbath, we hold firmly. But the how is something that our members graciously disagree on. So if you have any questions about this or would like to discuss this concept more, Tim or I would love to go as deep as you would like. So now that we're all on the same page, let's look at these verses. Starting with verse 13, and you'll notice again another if-then pattern. He says, If you turn your back, or if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, 
from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and a holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not doing your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In these verses, we see people making the same mistakes we saw earlier in this passage with fasting. That is, they were making this day, just like they made fasting, all about themselves. So to understand, perhaps, what was happening here, let's refresh ourselves with the fourth commandment found in Exodus 20, starting at verse 8. There, the Israelites were commanded, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Israelites were not to work on that day, perform any secular work. And perhaps those Isaiah was speaking to were actually not working and were obeying the letter of the law. That doesn't seem to be what God's taking issue with. What he took issue with, rather, is that they were making this day about themselves. Instead of honoring it, they were going about seeking their own pleasure. They were using it as a day for them. But God says that true Sabbath worship is about honoring him, delighting in the Sabbath by setting apart the day as holy, and that if they were to do that, they would find delight in the Lord, and that they would ride with him to the heights of the earth, and that they would reap the heritage of being the true people of God, that is, the true sons of Jacob, their father. So, again, Deny self, honor God, and experience more of God and his goodness than you could ever imagine. Now the question is, what does true religion with respect to the Sabbath look like today? And again, I'm not going to go deep here, which I guess technically means we're going shallow. But anyway, turn with me to Mark chapter 2. We're only going to read one verse out of this chapter, but I want you to turn there because this chapter and the next chapter is going to be very important for your follow-up study this week, okay? And I'm assuming you're going to do this follow-up study, okay? But in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through verse 6 of chapter 3, we find an almost identical parallel to Isaiah 58. And Mark absolutely did this on purpose. Because we see it, Jesus, in, in this passage, addressed the same thing that Isaiah addressed regarding fasting and the Sabbath with regards to both false and true religion. But in those passages, we also see him elevate both fasting and Sabbath to be about himself, to be about Jesus. So, again, that's your assignment this week, to read that passage and make those connections with Isaiah and see what Jesus is doing with fasting in the Sabbath there. Okay, but the, the verse that I want us to read is Mark 2, verse 28, 
where Jesus says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And then if you flip the page and look in chapter 3, he demonstrates how he is Lord of the Sabbath by technically breaking the letter of the law according to the Pharisees and working on the Sabbath by healing a man on the Sabbath day. When you have those two passages there back to back with Jesus declaring himself Lord of the Sabbath and then healing a man on the Sabbath, Jesus was saying, I am the Sabbath. I am the one who brings true healing and true rest. The Sabbath rest is fulfilled in and through Jesus. In fact, in Matthew 11 and 12, we see Matthew make this connection as well, where he connects true rest with Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath. And that's another passage you all can read this week. But in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you recognize any Isaiah 58 language there that Jesus uses with yokes? Whether or not we, you are a Christian Sabbatarian, or one who believes that the Sabbath day still needs to be observed, to be observed in a way similar as to what was laid out in the Old Testament, true religion with regards to the Sabbath is not just about this day, but about setting aside Jesus Christ in your heart as Lord and finding your true rest in him. Because to be honest, you could do no work on this day, you could worship all day long, and you could still miss the mark when it comes to honoring the Sabbath. It's about living a Sabbath life in Jesus. So what might that look like? What am I talking about? Well, let me speak from personal conviction here with two examples. All right, the past, first example is involving my work. The past several months have been brutal for me at work. I love my job, and by God's grace, I'm good at it, but the volume of work since January 1st has been insane. And the Lord has shown me during my study of this passage that it's really become more of an idol because it's what I seek for validation. It keeps me from spending quality time and leading my family in the way I should. It's starting to have an impact on my physical health. It prevents me from pouring myself out for others, and it keeps me from spending time with Jesus. In short, my life has become about my work instead of my work being a way in which I honor Jesus. And here's the thing. I could do no work on this day, which I often do not, and it would still be an idol. See, I need a Sabbath life. A Sabbath life says that work, you are important, but God himself showed that it's not that important and that rest is important. So you're not more important than Jesus. Sabbath life sets boundaries that shows my family, my employer, and the world that Jesus is my life and not my work. It says that I'm resting in Jesus for my provision, for my acceptance and validation, 
and I'm not just trusting in the hours that I put into my job. Now, substitute work with family, parenting, money, or whatever. That's the point of living a Sabbath life. That was the first example. The second example does involve this day. And more particularly, our the way we prioritize our worship on this day. Because the way we prioritize our worship of God on this day is reflective of the way we live our life, I believe. For example, I am not a Christian Sabbatarian, full disclosure, and I did not grow up in a family who practiced that. But I grew up in a family that prioritized worship on Sunday morning above just about everything else. That is, if you were not sick such that you were running a fever and would get somebody else sick, you were going to be at church. And if we were on vacation, we would find a church where we were at on vacation or traveling. Why? Because vacation does not dictate the way in which we worship our God. The way we prioritize worshiping and honoring our Lord and the way he commands us to in corporate worship shows us our children, our family, and the world, how much he means in our lives. So, did we always feel like coming to church as a family? No. (laughs) Were we usually glad that we did come afterwards? Yes. Were there ever exceptions? Yeah, there were exceptions. Because again, this is not a pharisaical or a, a... a law type thing that we're to obey because then we'd be just back in the same position as the Israelites in this passage. My point is simply the way we prioritize this in our hearts, in our lives, shows a lot about what the priorities are in our life in general. So am I telling you that to be a good Christian, you have to come to church? No, that's not what I'm saying. That's between you and God. But this is what I am saying. The power of your testimony with the priority you place on corporate worship is in direct proportion to the size and legitimacy of the reason you have for not attending. That is, the bigger and more important your reason for not being here, the fact that you are here shows how much of a priority God is has placed that in your heart. And the converse of that is true as well. So, That's Isaiah 58. I told you to saddle up. And trust me, nothing was said today that didn't first go to my heart. So Isaiah 58 is truly an awesome chapter. It's hard, but it's awesome. And we've covered a lot of ground with regards to fasting and the Sabbath. So let's now just wrap everything up with a couple of statements about true religion and false religion. We've seen that false religion is self-serving. True religion is self-denial. False religion is focused on external actions. True religion is focused on the heart, which often naturally produces external actions. False religion focuses on the right actions, 
But true religion focuses on right living, especially in service of others. False religion brings God's correction, but true religion brings God's presence and blessings. And finally, the end of false religion is self, but the end of true religion is Jesus. So may God, through his Son, Jesus Christ, grant us the grace to pursue him through true religion. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come again before you with thankful hearts. Thankful, Lord, for Isaiah 58. And Lord, even though it's beaten me up this past week in terms of uh, the way my life looks and, Lord, the way that I've been pursuing false religion. I'm thankful, Lord, that you don't leave us there. Lord, that you choose to correct us. And, Lord, I pray that you would point out all the areas in our lives where we have made it about us and not about you. Lord, Show that to us, as painful as that may be, Lord, that we might be able to correct that. And Lord, we also recognize that in and by ourselves, we are powerless to make those corrections to serve you the way we should, to deny ourselves in the manner of Jesus. So Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength to do that as you promised you would do. Lord, come into our hearts, mold us, shape us, and make us more like your Son. Give us the attitude of humility and self-denial such that we may be able to come into your presence, that we might receive your righteousness, and Lord, that we might ride on the heights of the earth with you. Thank you again for your Son, Jesus Christ, who makes all of this possible. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.